0: Long Talk Radio.
1: The least busy week in the political world. Um, will I be discussing Jeffrey Tubin's penis? The answer is yes.
0: <sighs>
1: will I be discussing Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's uh, nearly breaking twitch? Yes, I will. Will I be discussing Ben Shapiro's official endorsement of Donald Trump? Well, of course. Will I be discussing Pat Robertson? saying that Trump is going to win re-election and then the world is going to come to an end. How can I not? It's going to be a long show today. We got a quadrillion stories to get to. Um, So let's go ahead and jump right into it. I gave you a little bit of a teaser there up front. Here we go. We're going to start with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. This story is really amazing, and it feels kind of like a turning point in U.S. politics in some ways, at least culturally speaking. So we live in a new political reality, and listen, I don't like to generalize, but the boomers really haven't caught up, and many in Generation X haven't caught up. I'll be honest with you guys, I'm a millennial I haven't even fully caught up. You got Gen Z, is, uh, it really is, they're, a, they're their own people. And they have, they've developed their own culture. And, you know, we're starting to see now the emergence of that into mainstream American society in a way where the old guard simply wouldn't understand. I saw a great tweet about the thing that you're about to see where it said, imagine trying to explain to Nancy Pelosi what was going on with this story, like what this all means. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Among Us Twitch Twitch stream, peaked at over 435,000 viewers. A lot of you guys probably know the world of streaming, but for those of you who don't, that is a ridiculous number, that's a preposterous number, that's like literally, I think, top three all-time Twitch stream. I mean, to get 435,000 views on anything is amazing, even if it's a video you put up and then you look a year later and it's 435,000 views. 435,000 viewers of a live stream? That's out of this world. So what happened is, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted yesterday about maybe uh, streaming, playing a game among us, and a bunch of, you know, well-known Twitch streamers kind of immediately jumped on it and were tweeting at her. She was looking for people to play with, and a bunch of people were like, hey, I'll do it with you, and these are well-known Twitch streamers in their own right. And, you know, the rest basically is history. So she instantly became a Twitch partner. On top of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez doing it, Ilhan Omar jumped in as well. Uh, you know, this was huge on Twitter. People were talking about it nonstop. Um, Hassan Piker was actually instrumental in setting this up, and, and he played as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm friends with Haas, and... I think that's pretty cool. I'm going to come back to him in a little bit because there's an unfortunate angle to the story which I think was actually incredibly predictable. Um, But it came up. So a lot of big uh, streamers joined them. Like I said, one of the biggest Twitch streams in Twitch history. So what she was doing was, uh, on top of playing the game, she was pushing to get out the vote. Now, listen, you guys know my whole thing on it there's not a single person in this country who's more conflicted about this election than me. I get it. I get the lesser evil vote. I'm not going to begrudge you the lesser evil vote. I'm not mad at you at all. Everybody has their own reasons and they've thought it through as to why they're going to do what they're doing. Um, But to the extent that I'm cool with people voting Biden, I also am just incredibly turned off by the the relentless pushing of him as if he's better than he is and as if he's worthy of this all-hands-on-deck approach. And so, anyway, she was pushing to get out the vote. Not necessarily what I would be doing, but, you know, she was doing what she was doing, and it is what it is. Um, By the way, this is something that is more likely to work than a lot of the old-school approaches. But you guys know my other take, which is I hate when politicians lean into cultural stuff, because as a general rule, they lean into cultural stuff to avoid the policy stuff. Now, in the case of AOC, it's a little bit different, namely because in the stream, she was talking to, um, to H Guy, and he's a, he's a leftist streamer as well on the platform, very well known, and they were talking about universal health care, and I think he lives in the UK, and he was saying, yeah, when I get sick, I can go to the doctor, and I get help, and then I leave, and I didn't pay a penny. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was like, wow. So in other words, there's 435,000 young Americans mostly watching this, and they're getting educated on single-payer health care. And that is, without a doubt, the massive upside of doing something like this. Like, I'd rather have AOC streaming not necessarily to get out the vote for a war criminal and a mass incarcerator, but streaming and educating people on stuff like Medicare for all, I think is absolutely wonderful. So anyway, you know, credit where it's due. And that part of the conversation was absolutely awesome. Now let's come, let's go back to Hassan Piker now. So I knew the second I saw Hassan Piker reach out to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Twitter saying, Hey, like, I'll do it with you. The first thing I thought was if this thing blows up, they're going to smear Hassan. Why? Because, and this is the most important point, establishment media, corporate media, legacy media, they don't get it. They're liberal cultural elites. They're not young, they're not hip, they're not cool, they're not with it, they're not leftists. Hassan Piker is too edgy, too much of an outsider, and too much of a leftist to ever be accepted by the liberal elites and you know mainstream media publications. So true to form, this thing blew up. Like I said, 435,000 viewers, insane for a live stream. And here come the smears. So the Washington Post wrote the following: Most of the streamers involved in the event are not known for political content, barring Harry H. Bomber Guy, Bruis. Sorry, Harry, if I pronounced that incorrectly. A leftist YouTuber who hosted Ocasio-Cortez on a stream in 2019, and Piker, who started his career with the Young Turks. Piker's Twitch account was temporarily suspended last year after his comments on stream that America deserved 9-11 and that a brave Mujahideen was responsible for military veteran and Congressman Dan Crenshaw's losing his eye. Piker later apologized. Ocasio-Cortez ended with a serious appeal to hundreds of thousands of mostly young viewers. Please, again, make sure you register to vote. Make your plan to vote. So, by the way, one more thing that was good. She was telling people in New York, you vote on the Working Families Party line. Working family, Families Party is the left of the Democratic Party, and it sends a message of, you know, we don't even really like the Democrats. We prefer to be to the left of the Democrats. So anyway, and they get, you know, I think they get matching funds. And, but anyway, I digress from that. The point here is, I knew this was going to happen. Any time a left-wing, independent commentator is brought up, insta-smear. They did this to Cenk Yuger when Cenk Yuger was running for Congress. I believe it was the New York Times. They wrote a piece, and in the piece, they said, Cenk Yuger interviewed David Duke and said, of course he's not a white supremacist. Then you go watch the clip, and David Duke says to Cenk, I'm not a white supremacist. And Cenk goes, of course. In other words, being sarcastic, as if to be like, of course you are a white supremacist. They smeared him on purpose. This is what happens. If you're outside of what they view as the acceptable spectrum of debate, the Overton window, they will be incredibly vicious towards you, and they will smear you relentlessly. And now Hassan Piker is getting a taste of that. All the things Hassan Piker has said, all the stuff he's done, this guy was a, a, you know, a big advocate for Bernie Sanders in the primary. He's a huge advocate for equality and justice. And him and I have our disagreements, but who doesn't? But anyway, to, to sum up everything he's, he's done, to flippantly, he's like pro-9-11. By the way, when he said the thing about the brave Mujahideen fighter, he was joking! Obviously he doesn't want somebody to, what do he say? fuck Dan Crenshaw's eye socket. (laughs) Like, obviously that's a joke, number one. Number two, if you go watch the comments on 9-11, his actual point was, we funded the jihadists who then did 9-11. And we keep arming and funding jihadists who do terror attacks. Look at all the money and weapons we give to Saudi Arabia. And his point is, hey, this is kind of the chickens coming home to roost because we made this happen. And on top of that, you also kill civilians and create more jihadists with bombing the Middle East relentlessly. That was his point. Now, did he go too far when he said, we deserved it? Yes, but people are being way too literal-minded, and not they're actively trying to be obtuse. Is is the argument really that Hassan Piker's pro-Al Qaeda, pro-Osama bin Laden, like actually in favor of terrorist attacks against the United States of America? Honestly, you would have to be context-dense to believe that. You would have to be, like, you have to actively try to misinterpret in order to come to that conclusion. But that's what they're running with. That's what they're running with. And by the way, he also apologized because he said, what I said was wrong, if you take it literally. Here's the thing I meant. By the way, all the clips cut off right before he says that second thing. Like, oh, what I mean is, we fund Saudi Arabia. We fund jihadists. And then they turn their weapons on us. This is what's been happening. Dan Crenshaw supported the weapons deals with Saudi Arabia. This was his point. His point was, are you crazy? You're bringing about this situation as you, you know, pretend to be like Mr. Tough Guy and I'm tough on terror. Well, stop arming Saudi Arabian jihadists. Oh, my God. But anyway, this was his point. And now, anytime he's ever mentioned in polite society ever again, this is how he's going to be talked about. Because this is what they do if you're not in the club they will find the worst thing you've ever said and then actively take that and misinterpret it on purpose and portray you as a terrorist lover. By the way, if Haas really wanted to get you know, in the gutter with them, he could easily flip this right back on them and say, I think you guys are being bigoted. I think you're racist against me. Why? I'm a young brown streamer, and you're trying to portray me as an Al-Qaeda lover? That's pretty bigoted. It's almost like you're saying anybody from a Muslim family is an Al-Qaeda lover. He could flip it back on them and play that dirty game if he wanted to. But he's honest, so he's probably not going to do that. But this is what happens. Agree or disagree with Haas, he's got a thousand takes that him and I would probably argue on, and we have argued on him. Irrelevant. They're smearing him. And by the way, the main point is, why would they do this? Why? To try to scare Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar and other politicians from getting too comfy with independent-minded leftist outsiders. That's why. Because I've seen this script before. I've seen this script before a million times. If you're an independent-minded leftist outsider, they divide and conquer. They're going to try to get her to denounce him. Because they want to make sure she doesn't break ranks. She doesn't get too far left, too independent-minded. That, hey, 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 know your place. You better keep, keep calling Ma- uh, Nancy Pelosi mama bear. That's what you got to do. Don't step out of line, don't get too comfortable with these outsider, independent-minded leftists. They might push you further left, we can't have that. So smear and divide and conquer, and that's what we're seeing. And you know, this gets to the bigger point of like, I, I've been screaming at these politicians who mean well, who are on the left for the longest time, acknowledge the fact that there's a civil war inside the Democratic Party and fight for your side. Instead, They like to pretend like there's not a civil war within the Democratic Party and go along to get along with the establishment who will always stab them in the back, always. So anyway, um, there's gonna be a lot more of this. The more politicians like AOC and Ohan Omar get comfortable culturally and otherwise with young independent-minded leftists, the more the knives of the establishment come out. It's dishonest and they're trying to steer the discourse and make sure that they stay relevant, and anybody who's younger than them, more of an outsider than them, and has a platform, they do view them as their competition as well. And so they're never going to give you a fair shake. But anyway, this this is the world that we're in now. No matter how much they try to keep us down, us being new media, whether it's on Twitch or whether it's on YouTube, you get the sense, there's always some evidence, some hope of like, there's this whole other world out there that they're unfamiliar with and we need to get politically involved and engaged and active and not necessarily in the traditional ways we if we can get this much energy and enthusiasm for something like this in theory we should definitely be able to get a general strike we should definitely be able to fight on specific issues and push politicians left and hold them accountable and when you see these numbers you know you understand that there is hope for the future. We just got to get organized in a better way and have clear goals and have a strategy. Like I said, this is a new world and I guarantee you in DC right now they look at these numbers and they're like, "What? What? What?" <laughs> I mean, this is they're 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 on their own planet, totally disconnected from regular people and we really need to send him a message. This is fun and games, and this is like, you know, this is something that they're not even necessarily going to disapprove of in the sense that she's pushing for Biden during this. Um, But imagine flexing the same kind of muscle and really holding them accountable in the process and fighting for stuff that they don't approve of, because then the knives will come out even more. So get ready for that, but the good news is, it's clearly a new world whether or not they want to acknowledge it. Okay. All right. I am going to talk about Jeffrey Tubin. Here we go. Jeffrey Tubin. Jeffrey Tubin. Tubin feels like an appropriate last name for this story, doesn't it? Tube. Tubin. So I got to be honest with you guys, I didn't even really want to talk about this story. I was basically convinced and talked into talking about this story Um, because at first I didn't know what the hell to say about it. What am I supposed to say about it? What am I supposed to say about what this guy did? I'm sure all of you know the story by now. I'll get into it more in a second if you don't know it. But what am I supposed to say about what this guy did? I mean, my general take is don't randomly beat off in front of coworkers. That's my hot take. (laughs) My hot take is that that's not advisable. I wouldn't say you should do that. I would say you should probably not do that. Don't do that. So that's why I didn't really want to talk about this because that's my commentary. Boom, that's it. Shut the video off. We're done. Segment over. <laughs> um, but there actually is more to the story. So uh, Jeffrey Tubin, CNN contributor, legal analyst, as they say, he was on a Zoom call with other CNN personalities and CNN workers, and they were doing some sort of goofy. Election-related exercise I don't remember the specifics. All I know is that when I read it, I was like, "This is, sounds incredibly boring and useless, and they shouldn't even be doing it. It's a waste of time." There were a bunch of people on the Zoom call, CNN people on the Zoom call, and they took some sort of break, And I guess in that time frame, Jeffrey Tubin thought his camera was off, or he was also talking on a different um, zoom call or something on another computer. I've heard different variations of the story, so bear with me, just laying out what has come across my radar. And um, he went ahead, and he beat his meat. As my uh, buddy from high school, Dylan, used to say, he uh, was choking the purple-headed yogurt slinger. Now, is this a thought that you want to have in your mind, this guy wanking it? Probably not, right? I don't think anybody really wants to think about this guy wanking it. He likes to think that people want to think about him wanking it. Nobody wants to think about this guy wanking it. But anyway, so that's what he was doing. He was jerking off, um, and his camera was on on the Zoom call, and people from CNN saw him doing it. There's a bunch of different angles to this. So, I, you know, I still have questions. I still have questions. I don't know what the main narrative is that people have settled on. All, all that is clear is he was jerking off people from CNN Saw it, and he was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I thought, like, the camera was off or something, right? I thought you guys couldn't see it. And so let's go through the different scenarios. It's possible, and in my opinion, this would be, like, super unacceptable, that he's such a creeper that he's attracted to the voice of one of his CNN coworkers on the Zoom call. And... He was beaten off to the sound of that other person, his coworker's voice, and he thought his camera was off. And he was trying to hide it. See, that's the most creepy scenario in my opinion because there's a weird, you know, violation of privacy, a weird breach of office decorum, and that decorum actually makes sense and is there for a reason. Like, it's not too much to ask to say, "Hey, my coworker." please don't jack off to the sound of my voice. Or if you're going to do that, do it at home and without me ever knowing or seeing. So if he was doing, if, if that's what he was doing, then I do put that in like an even more creepy category. Cause that does cross a line that is, is a pretty like lenient line and he managed to cross over it. Right? Like that's not too much to ask to not do that. So it's possible that's what he did, in which case I kind of condemn that and I think he's super creepy. But then the other end of the spectrum would be he really thought the camera was off and he was either on Pornhub or some other porn website on the other computer or on some sort of Zoom call with a significant other or whatever and there was some mutual masturbation going on or what have you. In that situation, honestly, I just feel bad for him. Because anybody can make the mistake of not turning their camera off, and then you can get caught in in an act like that. And if that was the case, I really feel bad for him. And he was suspended by CNN. I would say they shouldn't have gone that far, and they shouldn't have done that if that's what was going on. If he really thought the camera was off, and we know that his intent was not to be doing something creepy on that call, then I just feel bad for him. The other option is he's he's one of these people who gets off to, like, flashing or whatever, and so on the on the call, he sh- kind of showed his junk on purpose and was beaten off on purpose, thinking that they know, and then pretending, like, oh, my God, tee I didn't see you guys there. Yes, I didn't. It's awesome. So if he's one of those kinds of characters, like, you know, I want, I, I get off on you feeling violated by what I'm doing. Well, then that's also mind unacceptable. So like it also it all comes down, in my opinion, to the intent of what was going on here. If we're really dealing with a scenario where Jeffrey Tubin was beating his meat, he thought the camera was off and it was on. I just feel bad for him. I really do. And I would even go as far as to say if that was the scenario, whoever on that call went to the media and leaked this story, you're a rat. And you're way worse than Jeffrey is. Seriously. Everybody on that call was convinced it was an accident. And then they took it to the media anyway to run with it. Why are you doing that? It was an accident. The guy's mortified. Why would you do that? I think you're worse than Jeffrey in that scenario. Um, but he also has a, a questionable past, by the way. He's a sex pest. He apparently got one of his coworkers. Daughter's pregnant, initially denied it was his baby, and now he's raising the kid and being a dad or whatever, but he initially denied it, and he was sleeping with the daughter of one of his coworkers. So based on that story, it leads me to believe that perhaps what happened here was not such an accident or it wasn't as innocent as as they're portraying it necessarily. But yeah, so that's why I think this is actually a little bit of a complex issue, is because it all depends on the intent. What was really going on? And the other point is, just be a little extra careful. Just be a little extra careful. Like, if you're going to beat off before some sort of Zoom call thing, just put some time between you doing it and when you're on the call. Again, unless that was his point, and he's one of these creepy people who gets off in a situation like that, then it's like, yeah, you're really creepy. But if it was a mistake, then I do feel bad. See, again, I'm all over the place here. I know I'm babbling, but... I think that the punishment has to fit the crime. And if we're convinced that it was a mistake, the punishment is way too harsh. It is. Um, but if we're convinced, if there's, if there's a chance that it wasn't really an accident and he was, this was kind of what he wanted, then I totally get the reaction. Because that's something you can't, you just can't have people randomly beaten off at work, or, you know, violating the coworkers in that way, or somebody who's obsessed with flashing, you know, so I feel like based on his past, I'm more inclined to think, I don't know, I'm actually torn, I don't know what his intent was, I don't know if it was a complete accident, or if it was one of the other scenarios I explained, but if he, it indeed, if he indeed thought he was, the camera was off and he thought he was totally on his own or whatever, looking at something else, then I do kind of feel bad. I do kind of feel bad because, uh, you know, almost everybody is a sexual being, right? Like there's some asexual people, of course, but the overwhelming majority of people have a sex drive. And if this was just an accident, And we're all getting on him because he was beaten off. It's like literally every single person who's going after him has beat off. And just imagine a situation where a family member walks in. Or you don't realize your web camera's on and you're in a work call or something. You know what I mean? Because there is this weird thing where everybody kind of pretends. Like the subtext of what everybody says is like, this is so outrageous. I can't believe somebody would do that. Really? If it, let's just assume for argument's sake it was an accident. Of course you can believe that would happen. He didn't realize the fucking camera was on, so he was beaten off. Don't act like, oh, my God, this is so outrageous. Nobody else would ever do this. Nobody else would ever do what? Think, think they were, the camera was off and they were not paying attention and just beaten off? think plenty of people would do that just you know most of the time people who want to put the camera off actually put the camera off and so then they get away with it <laughs> so I, I do feel this weird there's this weird puritanical thing and what i would say to jeffrey is assuming it was an accident nobody's going to give a fuck about this in a week so don't like he probably feels like the world is ending right now but nobody's going to care about this in a week like it's really not that big a deal but if it wasn't an accident, I don't really have that much sympathy. Don't randomly beat off to the sound of people's voices. Don't flash people. You know, I, my sympathy goes away in an instance where he's kind of violating people's privacy on purpose. So anyway, that's my take on Jeffrey Tubin's penis. Still not sure I should have covered this story, but there's my nuanced take on it. All right, we're gonna talk about Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro officially endorsed Donald Trump. I wanna play a clip of some of his reasons for you, and then I'm gonna come back and and break it down. We're gonna go through some of his reasons, and uh, I'll weigh in with with my two cents. A lot of you might be thinking, well, why does this even matter? Of course he's gonna vote for Donald Trump. Duh, that's obvious. Well, he, in 2016, did not vote for Trump. He didn't vote for Trump. So, you know, I think we all casually assumed, like, yes, he voted for Trump in 2016, and yes, he'd vote for Trump in 2020. But no, he didn't vote for Trump in 2016, so for him to announce it now is like, oh, okay, so you're you're not gonna do what you did in 2016, effectively. So, in other words, my point is it, is, it is news a little bit more than people are giving it credit for. We know that Ben Shapiro is super right-wing, that's obvious. But if he didn't vote for him in 2016, then yes, it is a little bit of an update here, and he's changed his approach in 2020. So, without further ado, here are his reasons, and then we'll
2: discuss I did not vote for Donald Trump in 2016. I am voting for Donald Trump in 2020. There are three reasons I'm going to vote for Donald Trump in 2020 when I didn't four years ago. First, I was simply wrong about Donald Trump on policy. Second, I wasn't really wrong about Donald Trump on character, but whatever damage he was going to do has already been done, and it's not going to help if I don't vote for him this time. And third, most importantly, the Democrats have lost their f***ing minds. So, first of all, Donald Trump has governed pretty conservatively. I thought he would not be conservative in his governance, I was just wrong on that. Donald Trump radically cut regulation. He actually saw reductions in the number of man hours dedicated to dealing with regulation for the first time in a long time under Donald Trump. He appointed originalist judges to the best of his ability. We're talking dozens of them, textualist, originalist judges who actually care about the role of the judiciary. He cut taxes, jogging the economy, raising its heights not seen in half a century, the lost unemployment rate in half a century, people having their wages rise at the bottom of the spectrum. He appointed pro-life people to the executive branch and pursued pro-life policy via executive order. He dumped out of the idiotic Paris Accords, which were useless and counterproductive. He dumped the even more idiotic and evil Iran deal, which gave money to the Iranian mullahs to use for terrorism, as John Kerry freely admitted. Donald Trump crushed ISIS. He killed al-Baghdadi. He killed Qasem Soleimani. Donald Trump is the first president of my lifetime not to start any new wars, which is a kind of big thing. He moved the American embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. He brokered the first meaningful peace deals there in three decades in the Middle East. He cracked down on China in unprecedented ways. He's resisted using the federal government to control everybody's life during COVID. That's a big thing. This is the biggest government power grab of my lifetime, and Trump refused to do it. Donald Trump restored due process on college campuses because he actually cares about due process, or at least his secretary of education does. Contrary to popular opinion, Donald Trump has not actually threatened the institutions. The fact is that Donald Trump may have been hemmed in by his own people. Whatever the rationale, he has not threatened the press, he has not threatened the legislature, he has not used the executive branch in nearly as powerful ways as Barack Obama did. But Trump hasn't been as conservative as I would like on everything. He's spent way too much money, like oodles too much money. I actually care about that stuff. His perspective on trade is a zero-sum game. I think it's wrong-headed. He still signed into law at the USMCA, which is a pretty good trade deal. But these are problems I've had with a variety of Republicans, including George W. Bush. Trump has governed overall in a far more conservative fashion than W. on policy. He is the most conservative president of my lifetime on policy.
1: that video goes on for like eight to 10 minutes or something like that, Um, but you get the gist of it here. He lays out his three big reasons why he's voting for Trump, and then he goes into some specifics. So what's fascinating is this. Virtually all of his reasons for voting for Trump this time around, they're almost all why I'm so against Trump, why I dislike Trump. He's actually right on the main claim, the main claim being, oh, Donald Trump is the most conservative president of my lifetime. Um, He's either 100 percent correct or you could say it's like a tie between Trump, George W. Bush. I don't know how old he is, so I don't know how far to go back here, but um, he is incredibly conservative, incredibly conservative. And, you know, I would argue one of the reasons why Trump is so down in the polls and it looks worse for him in 2020 than it did in the 2016 election is because of the stuff that Ben Shapiro's listing. Because when he was running in 2016, he didn't position himself as a hardcore conservative Republican. He positioned himself as a populist. He positioned himself as an anti-establishment outsider who was going to make sure your jobs aren't outsourced, who's going to end the wars. So, let's dive into this. His first reason is, hey, listen, I was wrong about policy. I didn't think Trump would be that conservative. He's extremely conservative. You're correct. He is extremely conservative. He's definitely extremely conservative. And you were wrong in thinking that he wasn't going to be extremely conservative. Um, His second one is, this is hilarious. He says, well, his character, I didn't want to vote for him because I think he has shitty character effectively. Um, but all the damage has already been done, so what if it doesn't make a difference in 2020? Like, the character stuff is already magnified, and I was right about it, but what are you going to do? I'll accept it, basically, is his point. Funny enough, the reason, the thing that he doesn't like most about Trump is the thing I like the most about Trump. So Ben Shapiro, he sees the mean tweets and stuff and the lack of a filter that Trump has, and he cringes. He's like, oh my God, can you at least pretend to be a serious person? Can you put up veneer, the veneer of being presidential, please? He's like, act more scripted, effectively. Act more, sound more like Mitt Romney. That's what he wants him to do. I think the exact opposite. The best thing about Trump, in my opinion, is the mean tweets, is the no filter. Like, that's the best part of him, because that's the most entertaining part. And he exposes a lot of these, you know, polite society hypocrites. He kind of rips the mask off of what the United States really is. And, And he's the culmination of capitalism and celebrity culture, He's like the quintessential American president in a way. But he wants, uh, God, pretend more, pretend better. Stop, like, stop being such a ruffian and a savage. Like That's his critique of Trump. That's the best part of Trump, in my opinion. The third thing is, he says, Democrats have lost their minds. See, that one I find particularly hilarious. Because Joe Biden is basically a moderate Republican. Joe Biden reached across the aisle and worked with Republicans repeatedly to try to cut social security and Medicare. That's who Joe Biden is. He's a deficit hawk. That's who Joe Biden is. He's a supporter of the Iraq war, which Ben Shapiro loved. That's who Joe Biden is. He wrote the crime bill, locking people up, he's tough on crime and big on law and order. That's who Joe Biden is. So in theory, in theory, Ben Shapiro should like him, but he doesn't. You want to know why? Because he's a partisan hack. He's not looking at Joe Biden's policies and saying, oh, actually, he is really moderate, and that means that the Democratic Party right now is being led by somebody who's basically a moderate Republican. He's center-right all day long. He doesn't look at it like that. Oh, they're crazy, because what? I'm sure he goes on at some point later on to bring up Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar and the like. But think about, see, that's the point. Think about what he views as Democrats losing their minds. <gasps> Now you have people in the party who want everybody to have health care. The horror. They want you to have health care. They want you to have college. They want you to have higher wages. They want to end the wars. Oh, my God, the horror. The terror. That, seriously, that's how he views it. The, the so-called far-left Democrats are just social Democrats and Social Democratic policy positions are overwhelmingly popular. Medicare for all, 70%, for example. I could go on here. But, you know, living wage around 80%. There's, on virtually every single social Democratic economic position, the overwhelming majority of the American people are with the so-called far left, and even, in some cases, a majority of Republicans are with them. But he views that as, oh my god, Democrats have lost their mind, and, and no doubt he would point to whatever, some something that a pink-haired college kid did, tried to deplatform a speaker, he'd take that, use that as a representative of the entire left and the entire Democratic Party, and, you know, take great joy in his straw manning of the opposition instead of actually hearing them out, actually hearing what they're about and the policies they want implemented. So um, the specific reasons he gave for Trump. It's just, it's an all-you-can-eat buffet of terrible things as to why he loves Trump. He, the, one of the first things he brings up is, oh my God, thank God, Trump cut so many regulations. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, we actually covered the story about a month ago. Um, millions of people now are going to have poisoned drinking water. Because he got rid of the regulations on coal plants. And so a lot of toxins and heavy metals are going to make their way into waterways and millions of people are now going to have dirty drinking water. There's your regulation cut, Ben. Do you like that? See, the way he thinks about this stuff is honestly childish. Regulations aren't inherently good or inherently bad. They're neither. It depends on the regulation. And so with Trump you know, basically putting polluters in the EPA to run the EPA, that's a problem. Those regulations are kind of important and good. The other thing is, what other deregulation has he done? Well, for example, he's obliterated the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has returned billions of dollars to defrauded Americans. So in other words, big financial institutions, banks, people on Wall Street, they rip off regular people. And it's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that does the hard work, does the investigations, and then cracks down on the institutions and returns money to Americans who were defrauded. Trump has destroyed that. There's your deregulation. Trump has destroyed whatever Wall Street regulations were left after the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession, which means, guess what? The next crash is inevitable, because they went right back to the same old tricks that they had beforehand. Regulation, it's so funny, because he would say he's massively pro-cop, pro-police officer, right? Why is it that you're pro-police officer, but you're not pro-the police of Wall Street? The police of big business. Do you think big business is always going to do the right thing, willingly? The answer is yes. The answer is yes, because he believes in trickle-down economics. He's a hardcore economic libertarian. Again, childish. So the very first thing he cites, or one of the first things he cites, Is like one of the main reasons to be against Trump is that he's cut regulations that are really important regulations. But he views it as like small government good, big government bad. Smaller government is cutting regulation. So cut regulation. The the details matter, Ben. They matter massively. Then he points out, oh, well, he appointed right-wing judges. You're right, he did. You're absolutely right, he did. And they almost always side with corporate power against working people, against average Americans. See, this is the thing about Amy Coney Barrett. People love to bring up social issues when talking about her. The case I always bring up is how she sided against workers getting overtime pay. I believe the case was with Grubhub workers. They're supposed to get their overtime pay. They didn't get it. They were stiffed. And then they sued over it, and Amy Coney Barrett said, I don't know what you guys want me to do. I can't do anything about this. You're going to have to go into private arbitration. And what that means is let management at the company determine whether or not you should get your back pay. And, of course, they're going to say no. That's always how it works. So he loves judges who side against workers, who side against the people, who always side with corporations and billionaires. And on top of that, he also wants judges who are going to, you know, for example, get rid of gay marriage or get rid of abortion, things of that nature. Now, listen, on this front, we could just call it what it is. There's just a disagreement between me and Ben. All the stuff that he likes are things that I hate. You know, the things that he wants to see in a judge are reasons why I think the judges are terrible. Um, By the way, the other big thing is they love money in politics. All these judges that he wants from, like, the Federalist Society, these right-wing judges... They they want to make our politics as corrupt as humanly possible. They want as much billionaire money and corporate money in the system as possible so the politicians keep representing the corporations and not regular Americans. These are the judges that he likes. These are the judges that he's happy Trump is putting on the court. Then he brings up Trump's tax cuts as a reason why he he loves them and he's going to vote for them. Basically, those were the Bush tax cuts on steroids. 83% of the benefits of that tax cut bill went to the top 1%, 83%. In fact, that bill is a net increase on everybody in the country making $75,000 a year or less over a decade. Think about that. All the tax cuts for the wealthy in that bill, permanent. All the ones for regular people, temporary. It's almost like it's corporate America's wet dream, because it is, because it is. One of the big things he did in that is cut the corporate tax rate. Cutting the corporate tax rate, why would, is that the thing that Trump thinks and that you, Ben Shapiro, think is like really important that we got to get to ASAP? Let's cut the corporate tax rate. That's not populist. That's not pro-worker. That's pro-corporation. If they cut it from 35% the nominal rate to 21%, giant tax cut, giant tax cut. That's what this bill does. It helps out the rich. And he's bragging about it as if It's wonderful absurd he brings up um i love this he brings up the lowest unemployment rate lowest unemployment rate we're hitting record highs almost every month now they love to do this they love to be yeah the thing about the thing is that before the before covid everything was better you don't get a mulligan bitch what do you think this is (laughs) why are you skipping a few chapters Very important chapters. The most important chapters. You can't cite that. There was low unemployment rate before there was high unemployment rate. Can Democrats do that? Can Democrats say that? Hey, before I had a low unemployment rate, now it went up. But ignore the up part. Are you stupid? Like, what are you doing? That's incredibly dumb. It's just so dumb. I can't believe he actually said it. I can't believe he actually said it. I can't believe he said it. (laughs) it. That's crazy. By the way, there's also just a lot of outright falsehoods. This idea of like, wages are doing great. Are you kidding me? Even before COVID, 78% of Americans were living paycheck to paycheck. Half of workers in this country make $30,000 a year or less. This was before COVID. Today, 32% of the country thinks it's very likely that they'll get evicted within the next two months. Think about that. Think about that. Funny, you left that out of your reasons to vote for Trump. Strange. Strange. Because that's the state of affairs as it exists today. you want to rewind it and bring up the unemployment rate, and by the way, you all know this, I don't need to bring this up, but it's the gig economy. Even when we had the low unemployment rate, a lot of those jobs are objectively terrible. People are underemployed. He actually got into a fight with Tucker Carlson about this a while ago, where Tucker was like, why would you say this is a good economy? People have terrible jobs. He's basically like, yeah, but they have jobs in freedom, free market, something, something. It's ridiculous. His position's ridiculous. Anyway. Um, Then he brings up, oh, thank God, Trump got us out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Imagine viewing that as a reason to vote for him. This, like, very, very mild baby step in the right direction to fight back against climate destruction. Oh, my God. He got us out of that, thank God. What? He brings that up as a reason to vote for him. That's insane. Because, funny enough, If you were to create a list of, hey, man, here's why you should do the lesser evil vote for Biden. Like, literally number one on that list is Biden is in favor of the Paris climate agreement and Trump isn't. And he brings it up as a reason to vote for Trump. (laughs) He wants us to go further down this path of total annihilation. I support that. He just doesn't believe in climate change. That's what he doesn't believe in it. Because somehow this guy knows better than the world's climate scientists. I mean, I say that, and I'm joking around, but he kind of thinks he does know better, doesn't he? Or he picks ones that are funded by ExxonMobil, and he's like, see, they don't believe in, in climate change. Yeah, and I could find you some doctors who are funded by big tobacco who don't believe that smoking causes cancer. I could can do that as well. And then he brings up, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll end on this. I could keep going. But I just want to give you a taste of, you know, the arguments he made. Um, he says... He says one of the reasons he wants to vote for Trump is that Trump pulled out of the Iran deal. Again, if there was ever a reason to consider the lesser evil vote for Biden is that Biden was part of the administration that got us that deal. And that deal was working. That's not me speaking. That's the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, speaking. What they said is, yeah, Iran is following this deal to a T. They're following it perfectly. And then they always lie about it and say, like, oh, we gave them millions of dollars. No, we didn't. We gave them back their own money that we had stolen from them. So it's not like we're U.S. taxpayers are giving them money. That's nonsense. That didn't happen at all. And in return for that, we had a guarantee with inspectors on the ground that they're not going to create a nuclear weapon. So now we pull out of the deal, and then Iran's like, we'll, we'll probably start making weapons. And people I've been are like, how dare you? How dare You wanted to pull out of the deal that made sure they didn't get weapons. Are you dense? What's wrong with you? These guys are amazing. One of the best things that Obama and Biden did was the Iran deal. To the extent that, and listen, here's the main point, guys. To the extent that you're in favor of peace, you should support that deal. Because right now we pulled out of the deal, now they want weapons, and now we're escalating with them. We're sanctioning medicine going into their country and food. People can't get the medicine they need in Iran because of our sanctions on them. Are we okay with that? That's a war crime. The International Criminal Court said you can't stop civilians from getting medicine, and we said, watch us. Funny, Ben Shapiro didn't do any segments talking about that. Ben Shapiro didn't do any segments talking about, oh my God, let's not hurt the civilians in Iran. What are we doing? I mean, this is, this is crazy, guys. This is crazy. Citing pulling out of the Iran deal as a positive thing. By the way, try to make sense of this. The deal Trump wanted with North Korea was like the Iran deal. What? So he's in favor of a deal to denuclearize in North Korea. But he pulled out of the deal to denuclearize in Iran now see me I'm not a partisan hack and so I'll tell you the truth the North Korea thing is one of the best things Trump did even reaching out to them meeting Kim Jong Un I don't care that he said the goofy things in the rally about oh we fell in love whatever it is. I don't care I don't care because I don't want to go to war and they want to do regime change in North Korea the deep state does I'm against that The best thing Trump did was not go down that path. See, I'm giving credit on that front and saying he was wrong on Iran because he's doing the opposite on Iran. It's incoherent. It makes no sense. He's contradicting himself, and it's ridiculous. But Ben cites the escalation with Iran as like, hey, this is why you should vote for him. Then he goes to, oh, he crushed ISIS, and he killed Soleimani, and he started no new wars. I love that as if we're not still bombing eight different countries, as if we're not still in Iraq, we're not still in Afghanistan, we're not, we didn't increase drone strikes by 432%, which Trump did, not in any new wars. What, the eight, the eight ones we're currently in are not enough? He's continuing them. He, he's a hawk. He's continuing them. But he's trying to make the argument, and this, this gets to the main thing about Ben Shapiro. This whole thing he did really makes no sense because you can't say at the same time, Wasn't it great when he crushed ISIS? That's hawkish. Wasn't it great when he killed Soleimani? That's hawkish. And he didn't start any new wars. Isn't that great? Wait a second. So you're bragging about you support him because he's hawkish and not hawkish at the same time. Do you not realize you have to pick one of those? Either it's good to go fight ISIS, go kill Iranian military commanders. This is great. Either those things are good or no new wars is good. You can't have it both ways. You can't say no new wars, but also bomb a lot of stuff, and isn't that great? What? That makes no sense, Ben. See, this is the point. He's gotten to the point now where it's just like, I'm just going to state things Trump did and put a positive spin on it and act like it's all good, even when it's contradictory. But to the main point, he's no dove. I wish he was. Then I'd give him credit. He's no dove. We're still in all the wars that we were in previously. He didn't pull us out of these wars, even though sometimes he pretends like he's going to. And the killing Soleimani thing is a war crime. You can't casually decide on a random Tuesday, how about we assassinate an Iranian commander on the ground and almost spark World War III? You guys down for that? Is that a good idea? I think that's a good idea. And by the way, there were retaliatory strikes after that. Because of course there were, because you can't just take out a top Iranian commander with no consequences. By the way, the little known fact that they don't want you to know about that guy is, He was one of the top anti-ISIS forces on the ground. So we effectively were acting as the air force for ISIS. In a geopolitical struggle, who do I want to win that fight? Soleimani or ISIS? Soleimani. Why? Because he's not trying to spread jihad. You might not like him, but he's not trying to spread jihad. And by the way, there's a lot of nonsense propaganda out there about how, oh, he attacked U.S. troops. There's no evidence for that at all. At all. At all. So what these guys do is cheerlead our wanton violations of international law and U.S. law. Because that's an act of war and it wasn't declared by Congress. Congress would have to approve a strike on Iranian commanders, on Iran. They didn't do that, but Trump bombed anyway. And he's cheering this. The same guy who lo- says he loves the Constitution and believes in the Constitution. Constitution says Congress has to declare war. Trump did an act of war didn't get an approval through Congress. What happened to your love of the Constitution? That's right. It's only when it matches your hack-partisan ideology that you really support it. This, it's ridiculous. This is all ridiculous. And by the way, one of the things he, does, the, he doesn't like about Trump is one of the better things about Trump. He says, oh, he spent way too much money. I I assume he's really referring to like, oh, the stimulus checks that went out at the beginning of COVID, that cost a lot of money. So in other words, the one good thing the government did in COVID, the $1,200 checks, that's the thing that he objects to. The thing that helped millions of people at a time where they desperately needed help. That's the thing. God, it's spending too much money. Okay, so why don't we cut the military spending? You want to cut that? No, you don't want to cut that. But stimulus stuff, stuff for Americans, that's the problem. Anyway, I could go on, and his video gets worse and worse as it goes on, but um, you get the gist of his take here. He, uh, he supports Trump now because Trump is super conservative in how he governs. He's totally right about that. But that gets to my point, which is Trump effectively, even though he he portrayed himself as an anti-establishment outsider, effectively he is a very pro-establishment president because he's governing like any old Republican would govern. So, and that's, again, I think one of the reasons why he's not doing as well in the polls this time because there was no crusade against corruption. There was no crusade against outsourcing. Just standard Republican stuff, which is why Ben Shapiro loves him, why I don't like him. And yeah, I just think his reasons are shitty because ideologically, I think that he's... uh, Hardcore, Kool-Aid drinking, down the line, neoconservative, laissez-faire, capitalist, fundamentalist, kind of boring and banal and somehow manages to be wrong about everything. Okay. God, that went on so long. All right, let's do the, let's, I got to speed up a little bit because I've been dragging. (laughs) I've not done nearly enough stories. All right, Pat Robertson. Pat Robertson had uh, a premonition or was spoken to by God about Trump and the election. Take a look.
3: be a war, Ezekiel 3, 8 is going to be a, the next thing down the line, then a time of peace, then maybe the end, but nobody knows the day or the hour when the Lord's going to come back, he said the angels don't know it, and only the Father knows it, so I'm not saying this is the second coming, but I am saying there are things that people have thought to would be during a millennial time with the coming of Jesus that are going to happen in our lifetime. And uh, the next thing is the election was coming up in just a few weeks, at which time, according to what I believe the Lord told me, the president is going to be reelected. I'm not, I'm, I'm saying by all means get out and vote, to, vote for whoever you want to vote for, but by all means let your voice be heard. But it's going to lead to civil disturbance, unrest of a great proportion, mm-hmm. then a the war against Israel, and so forth, and so on.
1: Hmm. Where have I heard this before? It sounds somewhat familiar.
3: But if he comes in, secondly, uh, he's going to have a second term. He's going to win. Romney will win. The do you believe that? I absolutely believe. What makes you believe that? Because the Lord told me. i <laughs> 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 you know, I wasn't sure you knew. <laughs> really, the Lord said it to you. Yeah, absolutely. I I told Mitt a long time ago. I called him. I said, listen, I'm, I've, I've been in prayer. I, I, uh, number one, you're going to win the nomination. Number two, you're going to win the general election. And he said, well, what can I do for you? I said, well, give me a seat on the platform. <laughs> <laughs> give me a ticket to your inauguration
1: the best grift in the world because there's zero accountability and there will never be because the people who follow him it's 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 all about faith so empirically verify fact check match what he says up against reality don't be ridiculous he said romney was going to win and god told him romney didn't win either god didn't tell you or your god is wrong And there are plenty of people who still watch him. Listen, I know he's not for our demographic, generally speaking, but there are people who still watch this guy. By the way, somehow he's been an old man since, like, 1976, and he's still kicking. He's still out there. They drag his carcass out there and prop him up in the chair and let him babble every night on the 700 Club. It's amazing. So, Romney's going to win. God told him, oops, what happened? Are you worshiping the wrong God? There's thousands of gods of thousands of different religions. Maybe you got the wrong religion, dog. Maybe you got the wrong religion. Um, and then now, so now he says, oh, God told me Trump's going to win re-election. Joe Biden is probably sitting somewhere smiling, loving that Robertson saying this, because Robertson gives, like, anti-predictions. Whatever he says, the opposite happens as a general rule. But he, he says... Trump's going to get reelected, God told me. And then there's some outlets, media outlets, reporting that Robertson goes on to say not only that, oh, that's going to usher in end times, but also that it will be brought about by a meteor hitting. I love this. There's so many, like, I think John Hagee did this for a while. He did the whole, like, the four blood moons or whatever it's called, and then there's, gonna like, the world's going to end when this happens. And we always like casually get past the date that they say the world is going to end. And they're all
0: like, was, I didn't say nothing about it. I don't know what you're talking about when you say all that right there. Because I was saying that the was in my eyes and I didn't see what you're talking about. You know what I'm saying? What does that even mean right there? I, talking, I think
3: what I'm saying is actually kind of true if you think we what I'm saying.
1: They just like, there's no accountability and nobody really calls them out. And then it's just like, yeah, but they just move on and move on right to the next thing. It's, it's amazing, it's amazing, it's amazing. How, grant me the confidence and the strength of a televangelist fundamentalist because these guys are the most brazen in the world. Yeah, God was talking to me and he said this and this. By the way, you they use this trick in their personal lives too. That's why a lot of these guys are incredibly sleazy because they'll, you know, this, this is what cult leaders do. They bring people in, they make them feel comfortable, make them feel like they belong, and it's like... Hey, dog, listen, I'm not saying anything here, but God did tell me that your wife needs to get the pipe.
3: No, it's not not me, it's not me, I don't even want this to happen, it's God, God said the thing. God, what
1: are you going to do? What are you going to do? I mean, you can't besmirch God, right? sure there will be retribution if you do that. Call your wife. It's 2020, for Christ's sake. Like, it's the age of the Internet. You can fact-check anything at any point in time, and there are still people out there acting like nobody could look things up. <laughs> I didn't see that. Did you see that? I didn't see that. God damn it, man. The confidence to just assert things that, on some level, you have to know that he's so full of shit, right? On some level, you have to know. I'm just making up all this, suckers. By the way, I love how in the Romney clip, there's also the admission of like corruption and favoritism. God says you're going to win Mitt Romney, and Mitt's like, what do you need me to do for you? And he's like, put me on the platform. That's what he said before he cut himself off. Put me on the GOP platform thing. Yeah, get the, the lying, scamming, fundamentalist televangelist on the platform committee to write in stuff about how theocracy is awesome. Really healthy system we got going on here. Okay. All right. Let me take a break. When we come back, we're going to play for you the most hostile interview of all time. I repeat, the most hostile interview of all time. That's what a lot of people are calling this. It is an interview from New Zealand. So anyway, stay right there. We'll be right back with that. And believe me, we got much, much, much more.
3: All right, baby, we're back.
1: Okay. I spent a lot of time on Jeffrey Tubin's tube, and I spent a lot of time on Ben Shapiro's silliness. So now we move on to. I really like this next story. I've seen some people online say that this next interview, which you're about to see, is the most hostile interview of all time. So you have a journalist in New Zealand is talking to a conservative politician who just got trounced by the Labour Party in an election. Watch this. After a decade
4: in politics, former National MP Jamie Lee Ross is of Parliament. The advanced NZ co-leader joins me now. Jamie Lee, you just described yourself as a loser. You are out of national, out of Parliament, out of botany. Your political career is in tatters. Do you have any regrets?
5: Look, we gave it a good go uh, this time round. We put together a new party uh, in just a few months' time. uh, We only gathered uh, 1% of the vote. It clearly wasn't enough, but I've enjoyed the opportunity to work with all the people that I have with Advance New Zealand. Do
0: you want
4: to have another crack at answering that? Because I just asked you if you have any regrets. You've just been um, part of a political movement which has been peddling misinformation during the election campaign. Do you have any regrets?
0: No,
5: I think we were asking some hard questions about the direction of COVID-19. If you're asking about regrets throughout the whole three-year term, of course, we could have all done things a lot differently and a lot better back in 2018, but we're here now, um, we made our bed, and we're just... I want to
4: fo- focus on the strategy. Look, why, why on earth did you get into bed with Billy Te Kahika?
5: I could see that there was a lot of growth on social media. There was a lot of growth in the t- number of people coming along was and purely looking purely
4: political ambition, not no, you your soul yourself. Political I could, ambition. I
5: could see that there was uh, people out there who were asking questions around things that I believe in too, around freedom and sovereignty uh, for New Zealand, and
4: a but, pandemic.
5: No, that is not, I've never said that, Toby. You haven't, I mean, but he has. I've never said that. COVID-19 is a real virus and we're asking questions about whether the country was going in the right direction. You
4: know exactly what you were doing. You were whipping up fear and hysteria among vulnerable communities.
5: Not at all. If you go and look at the mortality rate of COVID-19 compared to other um, flu epidemics... I'm going to... No,
4: I don't want to hear... I don't want to hear any know, of that, you What can, do you... Well, if you're going to come on, if you're going to come on the show and say things which are factually incorrect, I can do that, actually. Politics is all, you, all you've known. What are you going to do? What are you going to do after this?
5: I think it's time for a rest, uh, but look, I've enjoyed... Um, the decade that i have been in Parliament. I think it's been one where I've been able to serve my community of botany, and I've done that diligently. And the last two years wasn't what I expected when we had election 2017, Uh, but there's a whole lot of characters in the National Party too that I think uh, will be looking back at this term and thinking they could have and should have done
3: things a lot differently.
4: You said you do have some regrets from the the three-year parliamentary term, or perhaps more broadly in your political career. Um, This might be the last time that you're on air it's probably the last time that we'll invite you on are there any apologies that you want to issue to anyone?
5: I think we all in the National Party back in 2018 could have done things differently and we should have and that was probably the start of the decline uh, for the National Party had we all done things differently we'd all be in a different position but it happened we move forward and we focus on the future that's you what I'm you doing now
4: take responsibility for the drubbing that we served the National Party last night?
5: Internally. Back in early 2018, I was asking questions about whether the party was too negative, whether we should have been more aspirational, whether Simon Bridges was connecting with New Zealanders. I wasn't listened to internally. That was the falling out I had with Simon Bridges. Over time, it got worse and it blew out publicly. I was saying back then, though, the National Party wasn't connecting. Tonight, well, last night, their 27% was because they weren't offering a vision, they weren't offering hope to New Zealanders. And Jacinda Ardern did.
4: Why did you stand down in botany? Because all of the conversations that we had, you were still convinced that you were somehow going to win that seat. People have described you as a narcissist. It did almost seem like a kind of narcissistic belief that you could win the seat that was obviously going to go to Christopher Luxon. Why did you stand down?
5: Just rolling out all the terms. Why did did you stand down? I wanted to focus on the nationwide campaign with Advanced New Zealand. We had 62 brand new candidates, and I was doing that. Had I stayed in botany, I probably would have taken so much load off Luxon that Labour would have won the seat. So I guess my final gift to the National Party was, was, was giving them Christopher Luxon. All right, we'll
4: leave it there. Thank you very much. Former National MP Jamie Lee Ross.
1: That was incredible. Now, that, in my opinion, is how a journalist should talk to a politician. That's how it should be done. It should be... A relationship where you hold them accountable. That's your main job, to get answers. There's an old saying, I think I heard it first from Jen Huger of TYT, you need the media to be the watchdogs of the government, not the lapdogs of the government. That's totally true. As Glenn Greenwald says, it should be an adversarial relationship. That's how you should approach it in every situation. Now, US media people care about access i think more than you know the media in some other countries clearly this journalist in New Zealand and they want to make sure hey let me stay on the good side of this politician so that when there's a scoop coming down the road about something they'll come to me first and that sets up a terrible situation where you're never really going to call them out aggressively, even when it's deserved. Now, it does happen in some instances if they don't like certain politicians, like media in the U.S. hates Donald Trump. And it's almost like in those situations, not only are they adversarial, it goes beyond that to let use any and all arguments against him, even ones that suck, even ones that are not related to policy. So it does, there are some media, I break it down like this for the U.S., you have Fox News, which is the propaganda arm of the Republican Party. You have MSNBC, which is the propaganda arm of the Democratic Party. And you have CNN, you have ABC, CBS, the Nightly News. And as a general rule, they're, they do propaganda for both parties, the establishment of the Democratic and Republican Party. Not Trump. They don't like Trump. But they will for John Kasich, for example, for those kinds of characters, George W. Bush. So what you don't have is an adversarial media across the board that holds these people accountable. Um, By the way, I also think one of the main differences differences is in the U.S., they only hire people in corporate media who they know won't rock the boat. Every now and then we get lucky, like the Wolf Blitzer interview the other day with Nancy Pelosi. But by and large, you don't see the people who are in mainstream media rock the boat. And the reason they were hired and then kept getting promoted is because they put the voices that they know will color within the lines in positions of power. In the U.S., if you had a journalist interview Joe Biden like this politician was just interviewed or interviewed Hillary Clinton like this politician was just interviewed, that journalist would be gone. they fire them. So I would love to see an adversarial relationship, a relationship where you hold them accountable for the people. I'd love to see that in U.S. media. And, you know, with new media, you have the potential to get that. But really, new media, we're just more outsiders across the board, where it's very rare that we even talk to people in real positions of power. You know what I mean? It's very rare. Every now and then it happens. But um we can learn a lot from media culture in other countries because I do believe that our media culture is the worst in the world. Um or that's not fair. I'm sure there are, you know, there're plenty of author- outwardly authoritarian countries that have propaganda that's on another like I'm sure North Korea is worse, <laughs> but we do have a very unhealthy relationship between the media and politicians and it's crazy because I don't they don't really realize it. In fact, they think they're God's gift to this earth. They think they're amazing. US media people, US media elites think they're like the best at this stuff. And, you know, all I'd say in response to that is look at this interview, but also do yourself a favor and read Noam Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent and you get a good idea. Of the dynamics that are at play.
3: Okay, next.
1: Let's talk about 50 Cent. This is crazy. I can't believe we have a story about 50 Cent, but we do. 50 Cent, the rapper, big rapper from when I was in high school. Um, A lot of you guys are around my age, so I'm sure you know this. G-Unit was big when I was in high school. But he uh, got in a little bit of trouble when he tweeted the following. He said, what the fuck? Vote for Trump. I'm out. Fuck, Fuck New York. The Knicks never win anyway. I don't care. Trump doesn't like black people. 62%? Sixty-two percent? Are you out, your fucking mind? And then he shows um, a picture here. It's, I think it's from CNBC. Yeah, I think that's CNBC. Um, and it says top tax rates by state under the Biden tax plan. They show California sixty-two point six percent, New Jersey sixty percent, New York State fifty-eight percent, New York City sixty-two percent. Um, and that they say that's from the tax, the Tax Foundation and their breakdown of. Um, Biden's campaign and his proposed tax rate. So there's a few things to say in response to this. First of all, that's not really accurate for a number of reasons. So what they're listing on screen there is the nominal rate. So nominal means on paper. That's very different from what's called the effective tax rate. Effective means what you're actually going to pay. Okay. So the nominal rate, they say, is about 60%. But they're including in that, like, this is federal, this is state, this is local, this is every form of tax, and we're going to put it all together and give you one percentage. So that's what that includes. Now, Joe Biden has no control over state and local taxes. None. Zero. So to blame him for that, it makes no sense. Now, beyond that, because you might say, well, you're nitpicking here. I'm really not, because nobody actually pays. And this is what, if you go to the CNBC story on this online, the second bullet point says, few taxpayers pay the full statutory rates, which don't include deductions, credits, offsets, loopholes, and lower tax rates on other sources of income. So in other words, listen, they're fear-mongering. Oh, my God, the government's going to come take 62% of your money. Oh, my God. Now, remember, by the way, this is for the top earners, $400,000 and above, and nobody actually pays 60% because you have to include all the deductions, all the credits, all the offsets, the loopholes, like all that stuff you have to include. Those things exist, and everybody uses them. So the effective tax rate is so much lower than the 62%. Percent number, the 60% number that they're giving. Um, so by the way, what's the actual number? The actual number is Biden wants a top marginal tax rate of 39.8%. 39.8%. Under George W. Bush, it was 35%. Under Obama, it was already 39% under Obama. Um, under Trump... I believe he cut it all the way to like 25%, the top marginal rate to like 25%. So if they were being honest about the tax plan, they would say Biden's top marginal rate is 39%. Now, then we go we dig even deeper here. What are marginal taxes? Marginal taxes are the the rate that you would pay over a certain line for every dollar earned over a certain line, you pay that rate. So in other words, if you make, let's say, $500,000 is a lot of money, right? $500,000. You only pay that 39.8% rate on 100000 of that $500,000 because that marginal rate kicks in over the line of 400000 See, this is the thing. I feel like there's this whole – I don't expect 50 Cent to know the nuances and the details of tax policy. I don't. Um, but there's a whole brand of conservative commentary that actively – acts obtuse to the notion of a marginal tax rate. They did did this to Bernie in the primary.
0: He's going to take 90% of your money or 70% of your money. Ah!
1: And it's like, oh, you just, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. And by the way, here, I saved my most controversial point for my last point, okay? If somebody makes, makes using that term loosely, $10 million a year. And the amount of money they actually take home is $4 million in income that year? Am I shedding a tear for the person who just made $4 million in one year? So in other words, even though he doesn't get the dynamics of it, even though they're wrong about the rate, if you're talking about a rate that high for like really obscene wealth, I'm not going to be upset. What kind of a cuck do you have to be to shed a tear or to get upset when we have 78% of the country living paycheck to paycheck, half of workers making $30,000 a year or less. 32% of the country says it's very likely they'll get evicted in the next two months. And you're, you're going to take even a nanosecond to be like, oh my God. A celebrity only made $4 million in after-tax income. Sorry, I guess you can't get the third yacht. But, you know, if we take that money and give somebody health care, if we take that money and give somebody education, if we take that money and give somebody UBI, that would be awesome. <laughs> so, anyway, final point is, and everybody's been saying this on Twitter, 50 Cent is the guy, get rich or die trying was his thing. Like, what you're seeing here is class solidarity 50 cent is rich he's a famous rich rapper Donald Trump is a celebrity who's rich although he also has a lot of debt so not the conversation for another day his net worth is high nominally that's what you're seeing is class solidarity so in other words yeah if if 50 cent was pulling in 70k a year would he be crying about oh my god my after-tax income might only be two million no, of course he wouldn't be. So anyway, it's quite the endorsement. And by the way, don't, pe- people are making comparisons now with 50 Cent and Ice Cube. Ice Cube's situation was different because he met with Trump to try to get concessions for the black community. That's different. And he's not necessarily a Trump supporter. Ice Cube, he didn't say he's voting for Trump. He didn't say he's supporting Trump. In the case of 50 Cent, he'd said, like, I'm going to support Trump because, you know, I don't want higher taxes on the rich, basically. It's his argument. So I think they're very different. 50 Cent is, only cares about his economic interests and the economic interests of the rich. Ice Cube's like, no, I'm tr- I'll, I'll meet with Trump to try to get tangible policy improvements for the black community. So I think they're very different, but you're seeing a lot of comparisons between the two of them right now. Um, 50 Cent is significantly worse, and I don't know, this is pretty silly. All right, next. Next, next, next. So we have a bit of news about the Biden campaign. First and foremost, Newsweek says... Nearly 350 prominent Republicans voting for Joe Biden, 350 prominent Republicans. The newest one is Michael Steele, who is the former RNC head. I actually met Michael Steele at one of these Politicon events. And you guys know I generally try to, like, not mingle with other people like this because I, I honestly I don't want to get to know them because then it's harder to be objective and critical of these people. In the case of Michael Steele, God damn it, he was so nice. He was such a nice guy, like just stunningly nice. Like I'm, I was floored by it. Anyway, so he endorsed Biden. Um, now, but there's more. Politico says Biden eyes GOP candidates for cabinet slots. Progressives fret as Joe Biden transition team. vets a handful of Republicans for his potential administration. Now, what are some examples? Well, you have Charlie De- Dent former representative Charlie Dent. He's a Republican of Pennsylvania. He resigned from Congress in 2018 and became a lobbyist. A lobbyist. Then we have John Kasich, anti-union, anti-choice John Kasich, uh, and Jeff Flake. By the way, Jeff Flake, thanks to Dave Anthony for tweeting this fact. I learned about it. He has a 93% conservative rating from you know one of those groups that judges how, how the politicians are, are in terms of their ideology and their philosophy. 93% conservative voting record. Jeff Flake does. There's an argument he's to the right of Donald Trump. And this is who Biden wants in his administration. Now, is this going to make like a bunch of Republicans run out to the polls to vote for Biden? No. So why is he doing it? Well, some people might say, oh, he's trying to get those votes, which is why he's doing it. Possibly. The other thing that's possible is he kind of agrees with them, which gets to my main point here, which is, Listen. If Joe Biden is getting the endorsement of 350 Republicans, and these Republicans say something along the lines of, "You know what? I think I was wrong about a bunch of stuff. I'm now anti-war. I'm now in favor of Medicare for all. I'm now I want universal basic income. I want to raise wages. I'm pro-union." So in other words, I'm going to meet the left where they are on the policy substance, and I'm going to meet the majority of the American people where they are on the policy substance. If that was the situation, I would welcome the 350 Republicans with open arms. I don't care about what you did in your past. I don't care about what you said in your past. If you want to work with somebody for the betterment of the country and to move us in a better direction policy-wise, of course I'll accept you. Of course I will. That's awesome. The problem is these 350 prominent Republicans, they're not moving an inch. They're not moving a millimeter. They're moving nowhere. They're moving nowhere. Because what they realize is, oh, Joe Biden is effectively a moderate Republican. This is the guy who wrote the crime bill. This is the guy who did the bankruptcy bill. This is the guy who supported the Iraq war. This is the guy who reached across the aisle to try to cut Social Security and Medicare. So I don't have to move anywhere. I'm perfectly comfortable and right at home with Joe Biden. So, in other words, they're not signing up for a left agenda. They know Biden is signing up for a center-right agenda. So that's why they're endorsing him. And that's why it pisses me off. That's why it pisses me off. And putting guys like Jeff Flake and John Kasich in his cabinet, it's because he kind of agrees with them on stuff. He kind of agrees with them. They're going to say all this stuff about being a deficit hawk and we don't, we can't have any more debt, so stimulus is a bad idea, even though the economy is not doing well. And he'll be like, you know what? I kind of agree. I've been a deficit hawk throughout my career. It was one time I was for a balanced budget amendment. So he wants those voices in the room because he agrees with them on many things. So it's not, my point is, maybe it's not like a strategy to try to get more votes, in which case, even if it was that, that wouldn't work. They're not going to vote for you. The actual... You know, the Republican voters, the people, they're not going to vote for you because you got some unpopular assholes who happen to be Republicans in your administration. So I don't think it's strategic. Even if it was strategic, it wouldn't work. I just think he kind of agrees with them. And the final point is, sorry, but it's true, the the progressives, they're so cucked. They're so cucked. Just like the other day where 39 of them got together and a bunch of progressive groups got together and they did a, uh, you know a letter saying, Mr. Biden, sir. No lobbyists in your administration. No corporate executives in your administration. And Joe Biden was like, whatever. Anyway, let's bring Kasich and Flake into the administration. Let's do that. Because there's nothing, again, there's nothing attached to it. Hey, do this or else. There is no or else. There's like, can you do this? And by the way, if you don't, I'm still going to, pledge my support, and do whatever you want. Cucked. Super cucked. And now, you've made clear I'm going to be there no matter what. Bernie's doing events for him more than he's doing events for himself. And you hear progressives fret as Joe Biden transition team vets a handful of Republicans for his potential administration. Yeah, and you're going to sit there, and you're going to take it. You're going to sit there, you're going to see it unfold, and you're going to take it. You're going to go, hmm, okay, yeah. So John Kasich, oh, Jeff Flake, okay, you want to go to the right, okay, Then you're going to be like, but Trump's bad, so we'll go right along. And you wonder why you have no political power. So you got to throw around your weight sometimes. You got to draw some red lines sometimes. And they didn't do it at any step of the way. And as a result, now you're getting Republicans in the administration to do Republican stuff because Joe Biden kind of agrees with them. All right, now I'm going to show you the new Joe Biden ad. Joe Biden released a new ad that's running all over TV. Um, I have a lot to say about this. Take a look.
3: There is only one America. No democratic rivers. No Republican mountains, just this great land, and all that's possible on it, with a fresh start. Cures we can find, futures we can shape, work to reward, dignity to protect. There is so much we can do if we choose to take on problems and not each other. And choose a president who brings out our best. Joe Biden doesn't need everyone in this country to always agree. Just to agree, we all love this country, and go from there. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message.
1: So I have uh, I have two different commentaries on this. Okay, the first one is. From my perspective, from the perspective of people who generally agree with me, usually young, left-leaning people, um, independent-minded people, my reaction to this ad is, and by the way, it was Sam Elliott, actor Sam Elliott, who was doing the voiceover. I hate it. I hate everything about it. Um, I despise it. it. This is everything I despise about politicians. Everything. Let me tug at your heart, heartstrings with some uh, you know, patriotic music. Let me um, say absolutely nothing about policy. Nothing was in there about, I'm Joe Biden, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a, a new, new deal, an infrastructure deal. I'm going to do Medicare for all. He's not going to do Medicare for all. He's probably not going to do an infrastructure deal. Uh, I'm going to raise wages. I'm going to increase immunization. We're going we're to dig this country out of the pandemic by doing fill in the blank. There was none of that. Nothing about what he's actually going to do. Nothing at all. Nothing. So from my perspective, I hate it. Because what he's doing is, I'm just going to fill the room with noise. I don't have anything really to say that means something. So I'm just going to do the whole old school politician, 1980s style, let me sound like I'm incredibly patriotic, and, you know, there's no... Democratic rivers and Republican roads, or whatever the fuck they said. Yeah, got it. We're all Americans. Uh, oh yeah, let's get along, even though we disagree. Oh uh, oh yeah. Oh wow, what a deep thought. What are you gonna do? So I despise it. Okay, I, everything about that ad I hate. Um. Now for the other commentary. This is the exact kind of brainless boomer dribble that got him here in the first place. And there's an old saying, dance with who you brought. Is that how the saying goes? Dance with who you came with? Something like that. Um, I mean, the whole campaign was this. You have people arguing policy on stage in the debates. And he chimes in and says some nonsense about, we're Americans, man. Come on, Jack. We're Americans. And when you're American, you can do stuff that's good. And a lot of boomers were like, oh, yes. Oh, my God. He said he's for good things. I I like good things. So listen, it got him to where he is. This hokey, corny nonsense got him to where he is. And in some ways, you could say it's a backlash from the Trump era, where Trump is so non-presidential, so not professional, so not politician-like, and it's chaos and mayhem and insanity every day that some people were just like, oh my God, just let me read let me take a breath, let me feel like I can unplug for a second, just give me something that feels somewhat normal, oh my God. And Joe Biden comes along and he's like, hey my brain's not working, I'm a zombie, I got one foot in the grave, but you know what, here, I'll throw some platitudes and cliches your way, we'll talk about America is great when we come together and stuff. By the way, when he does the whole thing about there's nothing we can't do, which he says all the time, he says we can't do Medicare for all. You can't have one of your things be like, well, there's nothing we can't do as Americans, and then also be like, we can't do Medicare for all, we can't do free college, we can't end the wars, So anyway, I hate this, I despise it, it's disgusting, it's terrible, it's everything I hate about politicians, it's vapid, it's vacuous, there's no there there, and at the same time, Joe Biden got to this spot pretty crushingly by doing this same garbage, so it's very possible, even though this doesn't strike a chord with me, even though this probably doesn't strike a chord with you and many other people in our demographics, there are plenty of older voters, suburban voters, who are like... Yeah, I like this. So what we're going to learn very quickly is, yes, Trump is horrendous. We all know that. And if he loses, then we bring Biden back, right back to the status quo and the same old, same old. And even though the same old, same old might sound appealing at the moment because Trump is so insane, once we get into the same old, same old, everybody's going to realize, oh, my God, same old, same old is a lot worse than I thought it was. Okay, let's make fun of Dave Rubin. So recently, President Trump said about Joe Biden something along the lines of, Don't elect this guy, he's going to listen to the scientists. And Biden responded on Twitter, trolling. He said, Yes. Like, obviously, I would do that. That's a good thing. Well, uh, Dave Rubin chimed in. Now, I'm sure all of you are familiar with Dave Rubin. His political evolution has been something to behold. He went from, like, TYT host lefty to, you know, centristy guy who's like, I'm above the fray, bro. I'm just about ideas and whatnot, to, like, libertarian leaning. And then now he's, I think he's on the Blaze Network, and he's just the most banal, stale, predictable, down-the-line right-wing pundit. Like, he wants to be like a Ben Shapiro, but he doesn't have the ability. So, anyway, here's Dave Rubin weighing in on this debate about science. This is legendary.
3: Well, if we're going to say trust the scientists, which is a silly notion, right? You know, there's a lot of evil scientists out there. There's a lot of bad guy scientists out there. Have you ever seen a science fiction movie? I mean, not every scientist is right about everything. And by the way, you know what happens in science. You're not going to believe this, guys. There are often discoveries that then get debunked by things after that as we get finer instruments and more information and the rest of it. Science is often in the business of debunking science. That's that's the beautiful thing, you know. Science
1: debunking science. Is a point for science. That means it's self correcting, and that means it's a very good thing to follow the science. That's the first point. The second point is he really said, You're going to follow the science? That's a silly notion. There's a lot of evil scientists in the movies. Have you ever seen a science fiction movie? bro, stop embarrassing yourself. (laughs) It's hard to watch. Don't do this. Don't do this. This is like when he was on Rogan's podcast and Rogan wasn't even trying to school Ruben and he ended up schooling Ruben on regulation where he was acting like, Ruben was like, I love the concept of like getting the government out, bro, because that's probably like a good thing because then they'll probably do a better job even like building buildings and stuff. And Rogan was like, you need regulation to make sure they don't cut corners and they keep the buildings safe. You don't want to put like a, you know, a, a water line next to electric or anything like that. You don't want to do that. And he's like, but I like the concept of getting the government out. And then the famous line, oh, my God, the famous line where he was talking, he was trying to go after the United States Postal Service and say like, the private market does better, bro. That's why when I ordered live chickens, I got it from the USPS. And Rogan was like, that's the, that's the government. The United States Postal Service, that's the government you got the chickens from. He's like, and I bet if, I bet if they didn't deliver it, then private company would pick up the slack.
0: <laughs> Come on, man. You can't, like, you got to get,
1: you have to become a better propagandist. Because this is your face planting on the regular, dog. He really argued following the science is silly because there are evil scientists in, like, science fiction movies and stuff. By the way, prediction, at some point he will say, I don't know when, but at some point he'll probably make the argument, I was joking and you guys were fucking taking me seriously? A lot of bad faith smear merchants out there. Bad faith. He's going to say it. He's going to say it. He's going to say it at some point. He's going to say... I don't know what you're talking about, bro. I don't know I don't even know what you're talking about, dog. I don't even know what you're talking about. I was joking. No you weren't. That's actually what came to your mind to try to back up Trump's point and go after Biden because now he's just the most obvious partisan hack in the world. A lot of evil scientists, man. What are you going to disregard that? You're going to disregard the sci-fi movies? Pfft. Ridiculous. Oh my god. There you have it, Dave Rubin. I mean, he's got people who listen to him. He does. How much longer will they listen to him for? <laughs> I'm going to guess there will be a, a slow but steady decline because even if you gen- generally like the guy, stuff like this is just, at some point even you start feeling embarrassed for ever liking him. Okay. We have some news on immigration. It's making its way around social media at the moment. This is a pretty big story. Take a look at this. Lawyers say they can't find parents of 545 migrant children that were separated under the Trump administration. Yeah, that's a big deal. The child separation policy is a big deal. Um, It's actually been a very prominent issue, I feel like, featured under the Trump administration by the media. And... um, i mean i don't know what the official policy is at the moment but obviously they shouldn't have the child separation policy they shouldn't have that and they definitely should come up with new rules and start enforcing them rules being don't separate them almost under any circumstances i mean in some circumstances i guess they have no choice but as much as possible on the side of don't separate them and leave it like that because you can't have this continuing to happen. 545 migrant children and they can't find their parents. I mean, that's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. Now, um, there's another part to this conversation, which is uncomfortable for a lot of people, but I bring it up because it's factual. And so I got to give you the truth. But this, to be fair, hey, MSNBC covered this. You could see the MSNBC stamp on the bottom right there. But this is a little-known fact. ICE removals under Obama are way more than they are under Trump. So you can see there Obama's first term and the numbers. you got nearly 400,000 almost every year. In 2012, it was over 400,000, right? And then Trump, you see he's nowhere near it. Trump has deported way fewer undocumented immigrants than Obama did. That's the truth. They didn't make this up, this is real. Now, there's a question as to how did this happen? The answer is interesting. Apparently, it's not that Trump doesn't want to deport more, but what's happened is there are a lot of uh, local police that are refusing to work with ICE. And they say the reason that they're doing that is because when they were doing that all the time, there would be a giant increase in crime because undocumented immigrants were then afraid to call the cops when they saw a crime happen because they know, hey, if I call the cops, I might get deported. And so there was a, there's an increase in crime when, you, when ICE works with police departments and police turn undocumented immigrants over to ICE because then the undocumented immigrants do whatever they can to stay out of the public's eye, and so they don't call the cops in under, any, under any circumstance. And so when you talk to a lot of these officers, they say, listen, it is what it is. We have to have a situation where we don't work with ICE because if we work with ICE, crime spikes in our community, so we can't have that. So that's their reasoning, and that's interesting, isn't it? I find that's like a really fascinating dynamic that came about but, yeah, virtually the entire time under Obama, they were working with ICE. Police departments were working with ICE, and the deportations were through the roof. And under Trump, they've largely stopped working with ICE. And so even though Trump has the will to deport more than Obama, it, it, it hasn't manifested as a result of that. Um, now, the other thing is, in, so for Obama, a very high number, a very high percentage of the people he deported were criminals. Not just undocumented immigrants and their crime as being an undocumented immigrant. No. They were actually like they had criminal records. Now, they should have been more specific with it and said, hey, nonviolent criminals we won't touch. But anybody who is a violent criminal, yes, you can and should. Um, they didn't do that, I don't think. But apparently in for the year 2015, Obama's last year, 91% of people removed uh, were previously convicted of a crime so he was deporting criminals now under trump even though he has fewer deportations he is not prioritizing criminals he's deported many non-criminals so that's a that's an issue where like even though obama deported more i think his approach is more reasonable than trump's which is just almost like i'll deport whoever again even though he's deported fewer people who those people are i think are it's worse so um that's a really interesting fact as well. So, listen, the fact of the matter is there's a reason why Obama was called the deporter-in-chief. Because he deported a hell of a lot of people. That was Obama and Biden. And it is true. Listen, keep it real. As a general rule, Democrats will go right back to sleep when there's a Democratic president. And a Democratic president could start doing right-wing stuff. They won't say anything. They won't say anything. It's just Trump brings out you know, the anger of these people. And even though Trump's not deporting as many people as Obama, he gets more pressure on issues involving immigration. So child separation policy has to stop. I don't know exactly what the deal is with it right now, if they did nominally stop it or whatever. But 545 migrant children separated from their their parents. You know, I'd love to see those numbers for Obama's time in office. I don't know if they exist, though. I don't know if they exist because I'd like to compare that as well because oftentimes when you peek under the hood, a lot of this stuff is really interesting and not exactly what you would expect, but there you have it. The record of both of them on immigration for various reasons is not too great. Okay. All right, let me take a quick break, guys, and then when we come back, we're going to keep going. I got Frank Luntz. We're going to talk about Frank Luntz, who ripped into the Trump campaign. Stay right there. we're back. Told you it'd be a quick break. I had to pee. All right. All right, let me dive into what's happening with Frank Luntz, Republican pollster, who is saying some interesting things. But of course, I don't know what story it is. Okay, here we go. Number nine. Republican pollster Frank Luntz has uh, viciously gone after Trump here and his campaign. He's not a fan of what they're doing. Prominent Republican pollster Frank Luntz blasted President Trump and his campaign on Tuesday for focusing on Hunter Biden in the stretch run to Election Day, calling Trump's campaign the worst he's ever seen and saying the president's advisors should be brought up on charges of political malpractice. Speaking at a briefing for the British strategic advising company Global Council, Lunt said Trump's advisors have their heads up their asses if they think Hunter Biden will be a winning issue for them. I've never seen I've never seen a campaign more miscalibrated than the Trump campaign. Frankly, his staff ought to be brought up on charges of political malpractice, Lunt said. It is the worst campaign I've ever seen, and I've been watching them since nineteen eighty. They're on the wrong issues. They're on the wrong message. They've got their heads up their asses. Your damn job is to get your candidate to talk about the things that are relevant to the people you need to reach. And if you can't do your damn job, then get out. Wow. By the way, he continues. I love this quote. Nobody cares about Hunter Biden. Why is Trump spending all of his time all of his time on him? Hunter Biden does not help put food on the table. Hunter Biden does not help anyone get a job. Hunter Biden does not provide health care or solve COVID. And Donald Trump spends all of his time focused on that, and nobody cares. Now, listen, if you're saying, hold on, it, it, corruption's a legitimate issue, they are corrupt, so that's fair. I actually agree with you. Yes, corruption is a real issue. I do think that the Bidens and what went on there with Barisma, of course it's corruption. Of course it's not good. That's all true. But look at his point. His point is, dog, you got like a few weeks until the election you got a few weeks until the election. If you're not talking about wages, if you're not talking about the economy, if you're not talking about stopping the spread of COVID, then you are healthcare. then you're not focusing on the issues that the American people say are the most important to them. By the way, what did Trump do in 2016? He went to the Rust Belt in the final weeks every single day. He was doing rallies there, Saying, I'm gonna protect your job, they're gonna outsource your job. Who do you wanna pick? So he was kitchen tabling the debate. He was saying, I'm gonna make this relatable. I'm gonna make this clear to your average Joe and Jane that I'm for your average Joe and Jane. That's not what this line of attack is. And not only that, they also mix the corruption stuff with the personal stuff of Hunter Biden. When people see pictures of him in a bathtub smoking a cigarette or a crack pipe hanging out of his mouth, nobody's like, oh, I better, you know, wow, certainly can't vote for Joe Biden now. Nobody thinks that. If anything, they think you're annoying and weird for exposing these things, which are private. So it's just, he's right. I mean, Frank Luntz is right. This is not strong enough. In the era of COVID, with the economy the way it is, you can't successfully make the election about Hunter Biden. And then beyond that, and this is probably the most important point, they make these arguments as if there are no skeletons in their closet. Like, are you kidding me? You're talking about the corruption linked with the family of the candidate? My dude, you put Jared and Ivanka in your government. That's, that's like the definition of nepotism. That's insane. You made $73 million from foreign investors as president, and that's only for a year or two. That's not even the full, your full time in office. Jared and Ivanka made $135 million in 2018 alone, one year. Is all that money on the up and up? None of that money that Trump got or that Jared and Ivanka got came from Saudi Arabia, and then when you did the weapons deal for them, you didn't keep in mind that they're giving you a shitload of money. I mean, it's it's ridiculous that like it's all corrupt. The Clinton Foundation was corrupt. What goes on with Jared and Ivanka and Donald Trump and the Trump Organization is corrupt. What went on with Hunter Biden is corrupt. It's all corrupt. Honestly, I think if you deny that point, God, you're such a partisan hack. Seriously. Like, the mental gymnastics you have to do to get yourself to believe that any of that stuff is okay. None of it's okay. None of it. But this is what Trump is focusing on. As if he doesn't have the skeletons in his own closet and his family's not doing similar stuff anyway. It's not going to work, dude. It's not going to work. So, anyway... You could like Frank Luntz, you could hate Frank Luntz, whatever. But the dude's got a point here, and let me tell you something. What he's saying is reflecting in the polls. Now, I know that there are a lot of people who say, from, because of 2016, I don't believe the polls. I'm a poll denier. But even if you adjust the polls to be as wrong as they were in 2016, Biden still wins 362 electoral votes. So my point is, even if you say I don't trust the polls, and you adjust and give Trump a bigger bump, Biden still wins overwhelmingly. So to say I don't trust the polls, like you literally have to believe what every—it's all a lie. It's all fake. There's no reflection of reality. And by the way, they also adjusted the polls to be more pro-Trump and used a different formula versus the last election. It all fake. It's all fake news. It's not. It's not fake news. Sorry. So, I mean, listen, they'll they'll learn. They'll learn. They're going to learn the hard way, but they'll learn. This story is just so depressing. It's so depressing. It just shows how it's so easy to get so far off track, like you blink and insane things happen. So Huffington Post says the following, videos from right-wing site that preaches the left ruins everything assigned in Ohio school. An Ohio public school has been giving students extra credit we're watching videos from PragerU, a right-wing website that produces clips of talking heads such as Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro discussing conservative viewpoints, HuffPost has learned. The PragerU videos, with titles such as Build the Wall, Why the Right Was Right, and The Left Ruins Everything, were assigned to a 10th grade history class at Mommy High School, along with a series of questions about the video's most important messages. The assignment came at the same time that the website has tried to gain further influence in K-12 classrooms, K-12. Earlier this month, the organization launched a program directly aimed at parents and educators, complete with study guides with sections such as, Conservatives are the Real Environmentalists and The Ferguson Lie, based on a HuffPost review of the materials. Andrea Cutway, the mother of 16-year-old student Avery Lewis, brought the assignment to the attention of Maumee City Schools administrators and immediately pulled the daughter out of the class. Maumee is about 10 miles southwest of Toledo. So the reason why this is like almost unforgivable is that Prager U, like for propaganda generally to be successful, has to be subtle. It has to be subtle. Like give somebody something that's 85% true and then you slip in the 15% that's not. PragerU is not subtle, nuanced propaganda. PragerU is moronic propaganda. To steal an old phrase, I believe Obama actually used this, Um, you're using a hatchet when you need a scalpel. That's PragerU. They take a hatchet and they swing it at your face. And they say, what do you mean? We're talking this history. We're giving you American history. Listen, I've seen PragerU videos. One of my favorites was an anti-enlightenment video anti-enlightenment, they're free-market fundamentalists, religious lunatics, but everything is sort of packaged to appear professional and neutral. And the second you get even a tiny taste of what they're saying, the substance of what they're saying, you go, oh my God, they're really pouring it on heavy. They're really being as propagandistic as humanly possible. And listen, unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of this in today's day and age. Now, there's also, you know, the 1619 Project, for example, which was a big thing recently. There's some serious questions about the factual accuracy of what's in the 1619 Project. I'm sure many of you already know what it is, but for those of you who don't, it's basically, let's look at U.S. history through the eye of when the first slaves got here and... I'm sure there's plenty of stuff in there that's true, but there are also questions as to factual inaccuracies in the 1619 Project. So you're telling me your choices are 1619 Project or PragerU. One of them is flat out arguing that American exceptionalism is the correct position. That like, no, we're, what is another word for exceptional? Supreme. So we're American supremacists. You can't say we believe in equality and then also say we believe we're supreme. We're we're above others in the world. But like this is this is what we're teaching and it's so hard these days. Like the idea of getting something that's actually teaching something that's correct. It's like it's reality is far too nuanced for simpletons. So you have people who want to default to certain narratives. And it's like, well, what if it's messy? What if it's messy? What if, you know, um, you can talk about the Trail of Tears and the Native American genocide and segregation and say, you know what, these things are really bad. While also talking about how the First Amendment and free speech and freedom of the press is amazing and wonderful, and the New Deal helped dig this country out of the Great Depression. And yes, we helped defeat Hitler, The Soviet Union did as well, but yes, that was a good thing. So you could talk about good, you could talk about bad, you can be nuanced about it, but this is where we're at. This is where we're at now. It's 1619 Project, where there are questions about factual inaccuracies, or PragerU, who's they're just wrong about virtually everything. It's just hardcore right-wing propaganda. It's it's a scary thing because somehow in the information age, it's like they're trying to drill into people's heads these narratives from early on, and you know, I don't want the only narratives to be America's a horrendous country, and racist to its core and irredeemable, or America's right about everything. American exceptionalism is awesome. Uh, capitalism is flawless. The Enlightenment was stupid. Religion is amazing, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. So, but this is where we're at. And like, it's really depressing to me how stupid it is that we're in this place where we are. Let's talk about the Pope. So, uh, interesting surprise here, I guess, coming out of 2020, although I don't know how much of a surprise this is based on previous comments, but the Pope says that same-sex couples should be covered by civil union laws. Pope Francis says in a new film released on Wednesday that homosexuals should be protected by civil union laws In some of the clearest language he has used on the rights of gays, quote, homosexual people have a right to be in a family. They are children of God and have a right to a family. Nobody should be thrown out or be made miserable over it, he says in the documentary Francesco. So um, I have a few thoughts on this. Let's state the obvious first. I would rather have the Catholic Church take this position than take the We're against gay marriage and civil union's position, and we don't like gays, effectively. We think it's a sin, we think it's bad, so we don't want to encourage that in any way, shape, or form, so you should do conversion therapy, basically. The position he's taking is objectively better than the other positions. Having said that, for people who are really going over the top in cheering this, what a low bar. Because there are so many countries around the world that have gay marriage now. So many of them. And... They're splitting the difference. They're taking the middle ground position, the weaselly take of like, well, marriage is a you know, is a union of a man and a woman. So we can't have that for them. But, hey, we'll give you the same legal rights and just call it something different. We'll call it a civil union. So they're taking the middle path, even though we've already evolved to the full thing, at least in the U.S. and many other places. And I'm supposed to give you credit. But see, that's the thing is like if you want to you portray yourself as some sort of moral and ethical authority whose whole purpose on this earth is to try to bring about a more just world and do the right thing and bring about more happiness and equality, limit poverty, end poverty, end war. Like if you really want to be a leader on this front, you got to be a leader on the front. You can't, after other nations already evolved to the obvious position of let's treat everybody equally and allow gay marriage, you can't then be like, I'll meet you halfway and still be kind of wrong on it. Well, then I'm not going to praise you. Again, it's better than nothing, but that's not, that's such a low bar. It's such a low bar. So, I don't know, it'll be interesting to see the fallout from this, because I know there are many Catholics in my family, and some of them are rather conservative, and it'll be interesting to see how they view this. Do they view this as like, oh my God, the Pope is going back on what he should be doing and saying? Or will they view it as like, ah, yeah, it's a step in the right direction, you got to treat people equally. So, But I think with a lot of these institutions, what they realize is we either evolve or die new generations of young, open-minded, tolerant people are not going to see an organization that doesn't like gay people and be like, I'm cool with signing up for that. They're going to be like, I don't really like that. So I think, to some extent, it's a matter of necessity. Evolve or die. And he's choosing to evolve, even though it's just a baby step in the right direction. But, I mean, listen, it really is stuff like this that drives me crazy, is that there are so many things where we have the answers and we know the answers right now, and everybody just drags their feet in society. You know, and and actually, to be fair, it's not necessarily the people. It's more of our governing institutions and power centers and the elites. So, like, you know, for example, we know that we're bombing eight countries and we shouldn't be, but we just keep doing it. And there will come a time where we stop doing it and the empire declines. And then, you know, you read in history books and we're like, yeah, we kept doing that for decades and decades and decades and the kids will be like, well, don't, why, why did you even do it in the first place? And if you did it, why didn't you stop after like a year? I mean, obviously that's crazy. You're killing civilians and everything. And everybody will be like, yeah, you know, you're right about that. We're doing it right now. <laughs> We're doing it right now, these things. And we just kind of passively accept it even though we know it's wrong. And that's what annoys me. Passively accepting things that are wrong and not standing up and saying something about it now when we can make a difference, whether it's the wars continuing, whether it's, you know, Millions of Americans not having health care, whatever it might be. But these things are egregious, egregiously immoral and unethical. And so forgive me if I'm not, you know, falling all over myself to give credit for the tiny baby step in the right direction. When, if anything, if you really wanted to be a moral leader, maybe you, led, you should have led the way from the very beginning and said, we, we think gay should be treated equally and we're in favor of gay marriage. Imagine if the Catholic Church was the first to do that. Then that would deserve credit. But no, you're ever so slowly following the moral trends of history and trying to jump in front of the parade a little bit here, and I don't know. It's just such a low bar, and it's like, come on, can everybody just, let's get to where we know we need to be. I know, maybe I'm impatient, but that's how I feel. All right, final story of the day, guys. I love this story from The Hill. It's one of my favorite, and the reason why it is is how shamelessly made up it is. Police in New Hampshire are investigating a series of threatening letters sent to supporters of President Trump. The letters were reportedly received by residents of Milford, New Hampshire and Brookline, New Hampshire, and included threats burn down the recipients' homes, New Hampshire station WMUR9 reported. One of the recipients, identified as Kelly, shared her letter with the news outlet. Dear neighbor, the letter read, you have been identified by our group as being a Trump supporter. Your address has been added to our database as a target when we attack should Trump not concede the election. It continued by suggesting the homeowners check their home insurance to ensure it covers fire damage. Quote, I was very taken aback. This is my home, Kelly told WMUR9. You're not supposed to threaten my home. I'm very worried in the sense that this is going on in my town. Let me get this straight. Trump supporters approached the media and said, oh, my God, you have to cover this story. We're being victimized. We're under attack. And then they say letters were left at our houses where the letters say if Trump doesn't step down, we're going to burn down your house. You know, call me crazy, but I think the type of person who would burn down somebody's house is not the type of person who would pre plan and send a letter expressing and letting somebody know that indeed I plan on burning down your house. That's not something you do. If somebody's crazy enough to burn down a house, they don't send letters expressing that this is what's going to happen. You know what this sounds like to me? Sounds to me like a bunch of Republicans want to play the victim want to play the victim card, and so they, somebody was leaving letters either at their own door, or there's other Republicans who are like, we're going to do this and blame it on Antifa, blame it on the left, show how out of control the radicals are, and here we are. This reminds me of that famous story now that blew up where some guy was like, oh my god, my property was vandalized by the left, and one of the things that he wrote in graffiti on his own driveway was like, blacks rule. <laughs> what? Blacks rule and they, like, burned an American flag or something. And he's standing there like, yeah, they they got me. No, you did all that. You did all that. Because at the end of the day, there is a certain percentage, small percentage of Trump people who they love the victim stuff. And they're jealous when people on the left play the victim in a variety of scenarios, sometimes legit, right? They wish they had that. They want to be the oppressed gives them a sense of an in-group, out-group mentality and tribalism, and it makes them feel closer. And so they want to portray, we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. We're so victimized. Oh, my God, the left is so extreme. Oh, my God. They sent a letter to me saying that they're going to burn down my house. Let me share it with the media and whine. I'm calling it right now. You might say I'm a dick for being as confident on this as I am, but I'm calling bullshit. I am convinced already that this is not real, that this is fake. Either they wrote the letters and gave, you know, put them on their own doorsteps and played the victim or some other Republicans did it unknowingly to other Republicans. You know what I mean? Like, in other words, there is an attempt to be like, see how out of control Antifa and the radical left is. You got to vote for Trump because look at, look, these are the the lawless mob you want in control. Look at what they're doing. Ridiculous. You should have came up with a better scam because I'm certainly not buying this one. All right, guys, I love you, baby. I'll talk to everybody soon. Enjoy
0: the rest of your day. Peace.